You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science alone. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer. And Dr. Andrea Love. And this week, we are going to answer a question that we've heard from the herd many times, and it's, why were we able to develop a vaccine for COVID-19, but haven't been able to for HIV? And, you know, Andrea, people ask us this with regard to cancer and some other things too, but we wanted to focus specifically on HIV today. So, Before we dive into that, uh, I'll just briefly recap what we talked about last week. So we dove into the science on, you know, whether we can and whether we should change the acidity, the pH of our bodies. And we spent a lot of time talking specifically about the alkaline diet. Uh, Proponents of this diet, of course, um, tout its benefits in preventing things like osteoporosis and cancer. Uh, But we we debunked a lot of misinformation swirling around this diet. Uh, We emphasized some of the potential dangers about attempting to change the pH of your body, in particular for certain high-risk populations. And of course, underscored that any major dietary change should be um, approved by your medical provider. So, okay, so we're going to dive into, um, you know, again, why are we able to develop this vaccine for COVID, but not, uh, but not HIV? But first, we'll kick things off with an icebreaker as usual. So, uh, Andrea, one of our favorite topics to talk about food. What is <laughs> what is your favorite meal to cook, and why? Oh, man, that's tough. Um, I don't know if I have a favorite meal per se, but I guess, you know, I would say a favorite cuisine. Um, I tend to cook a lot of Japanese style food. And I and I think partly it's because it's so forgiving, you can really throw whatever ingredients you have on hand together into some sort of noodle dish or or thing like that. And it and it always comes out delicious. And I tend to gravitate towards that sweet savory combo. So a lot of these like, you know, rice vinegar, you know, soy ginger type things, um, you know, tend to be the type of flavors that I gravitate towards. Oh, yum. I actually think that's on the menu for us tonight. Some sort of noodle, (laughs) veggie, meat concoction. That sounds really delicious. Um, Okay, so my answer is, I'll just take you down a very uh, brief trip down memory lane, Andrea. But there is this incredible Argentinian restaurant in Queens, New York, in Elmhurst, Queens. It's called La Fusta. And I went there my entire childhood with my parents. It was this very special restaurant we'd always go um, late. It was actually where Ethan, my now husband, proposed to me. Um, It's where we had my baby shower for my first pregnancy. And um, I live in Florida now. And so we try to recreate some of the dishes from there. And so there are two things that we like to recreate. And I just, I I have to just detail this just for one moment, if you'll. (laughs) Yes, please. They have this salad that is, do you ever eat watercress? Mm -hmm. It is beyond 
Ha! Huh. So it's watercress, hearts of palm, avocado, red onion, tomato, shrimp, egg, lima beans with fresh lemon juice, olive oil, salt, and pepper. And then we also make this marinated skirt steak with chimichurri sauce. And it's it's nothing, you know, complex. There are other dishes that we cook that are more technically impressive, but this one is delicious. And also, you know, there's an emotional component. I mean, so. it all sounds delicious. <laughs> I love all of the ingredients in that salad. Um, so I'm definitely, I'm definitely on board with that idea. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. So let's dive into the, uh, the subject matter at hand. So, you know, we get this question all the time and, and I feel like a lot of vaccine skeptics are, are often saying, you know, how is it possible that we came up with this COVID-19 vaccine in less than one year? We developed it so quickly, but HIV, which has been around for decades, we don't have a vaccine for that. You know, something's fishy. So why might that be? So just to set the stage here, about 38 million people worldwide live with HIV. Of course, uh, HIV stands for the human immunodeficiency virus. And about 700,000 died uh, from HIV-related complications in 2019. Every year, about 2 million people become infected with HIV. So we now have treatments available to prevent or treat HIV infections, um, which has dramatically slowed mortality and increased survival rates. It's fantastic. There's still no vaccine or cure for HIV. So 1983 was the year that the HIV virus was isolated and identified by researchers at the Pasteur Institute in France. So it's been over 37 years since, you know, we first identified this virus and we still don't have uh, a, a successful vaccine. At the time, back in the early 80s, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services announced that they hope to have a vaccine ready within two years. Again, fast forward almost four decades later, later and we still don't have one. This is not for lack of trying. And Andrea, I mean, you could certainly speak to this as an immunologist far better than I can, but I think it's really important to take a step back and explain, you know, there are some really key fundamental differences between, I mean, in particular, you know, I know now everyone's curious about comparing SARS-CoV-2 and HIV, but all viruses are different. So can you take us through a little bit of a primer on on viruses? (laughs) Yeah, I could talk about that all day, but I'll try and keep it simple. So you know, viruses, just like every other organism that, that you know, we know of and have identified, including ourselves, are classified based on genetics. So if we want to simplify how viruses are classified, there are groups of viruses. Now, these groups are based on the type of genome. So how their genetic material is made up, and I'll get a little bit more into that in, in a minute. Um, but then within each of those groups, there are families of viruses, and within each family, there's often subfamilies, and then ultimately there are species. Um, so every virus species has a distinct property, just like every other species that exists, right? So if we're talking kind of a uh, an analogy here or comparison, we talk about the the canine family, which is called Canidae. That family of, of 
animals has 34 species, and those include domestic dogs, all of the different breeds, uh, wolves, coyotes, foxes, jackals, all sorts of um, uh, canines. Now, while they're similar to each other, I think we can all agree that, you know, a domestic dog is quite distinct from that of a wolf or a fox. Um, now, outside of the, the canine family, there's the order of mammals, right? Mammalia, which is above that. And so within the mammals, really broadly speaking, we have lots of other animals as well. So cats, monkeys, rabbits, hamsters, even humans are in the mammal order, which technically are related to your canines. So while all mammals also share some characteristics with each other, um, of course, they are all very quite different from each other as well. So that kind of you know, organization is essentially the same situation with viruses. Um, the, the actual way that viruses are classified is a little bit different, and that's because um, viruses are not technically cells. They're not technically um, organisms. They're not even a bacteria. They're even more simple than a bacteria. And part of that means that they don't adhere to this um, this, this um, classification we use called the central dogma of molecular biology. So the central dogma basically describes how organisms exist, right? So double-stranded DNA is the genetic encyclopedia of organisms, right? And that is converted into single-stranded RNA through a process called transcription, and that that RNA is then converted into a protein through a process called translation. So it goes double-stranded DNA to single-stranded RNA to protein. That's the central dogma in a nutshell. Um, but viruses are not technically cells, so they actually don't adhere to that. So some viruses actually have double-stranded RNA, some have single-stranded DNA, and some even go backwards. Instead of going DNA to RNA, they go RNA to DNA. Um, and so those are kind of the groups that I was referring to. And all of these different viruses um, reproduce differently based on how their genetic material is made up, and they are classified based on those categories as well. Andrea, just to interject, I'm just putting two and two together here. We were going to name the podcast Central Dogma. Do you remember that was one of the yes. names we were talking yep, about? I do. It all makes sense. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Okay. I'm having really bad flashbacks um, to to bio courses from, from, um, from college. College. But okay, so should we get, can we talk specifically about SARS-CoV-2, which again, that's the virus that causes COVID-19. It's in the coronavirus family. Can we talk about that and how it compares to HIV? Sure, yeah. And I'll try and keep it simple, but you know, everybody just be aware it's it's dense material. You know, it's that's just the way it is. So, so you know, I mentioned that there are these different virus families, and within these families, you can kind of think of it like canines versus versus felines, you know, things like that, where, you know, yes, they're all viruses, but they all are quite distinct from each other. Um, so SARS-CoV-2 is the name of the virus that causes the disease COVID-19. Um, and that virus, SARS-CoV-2, is in the coronavirus family. And these are a family of RNA viruses. So what that means is that their genetic material is 
made up of RNA. Um, and, and it contains a large group of viruses. Um, many of these infect other mammals. Um, many of them infect birds. And there's actually a subfamily within the coronavirus family that, that actually also infect reptiles. So you've got this very broad swath of different viruses, and they all infect a lot of different species. Now, all of these coronaviruses cause a variety of illnesses, um, and they range from mild respiratory infections to fatal disease. The very first coronavirus was actually described in the 1930s, and it was this strange respiratory infection that swept across farms in the Midwest, and it killed tens of thousands of baby chickens. And they called it infectious bronchitis virus, or IBV. Now, they initially thought it was related to influenza, but after many, many years of research, actually decades, uh, I think almost four decades, it was like 38 years or something like that, um, and the emergence of some other viruses that resembled it structurally, they decided that this was actually a new family, and they called it coronavirus for uh, the crown-like spike proteins um, that that are around the outside of the virus. So corona means crown. Um, um, and, and it has these kind of spikes. How did I not know that? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Sorry, go on. I'm learning so much. Go on. <laughs> um, so anyway, so back then, you know, we had these bird coronaviruses. There were also some, some other mammalian ones. There was one in mice that was identified. Um, but the first human coronaviruses were discovered in 1963. Um, and these are called OC43 and 229E. Not very exciting names. Um, now, these two, alongside two others called NL63 and HKU1, cause um, colds in humans. And there's other viruses that also cause colds in humans. And if you could see me, I have air quotes because colds are just a very broad catch-all for mild respiratory illnesses. Um, so those those four are called the human coronaviruses. They cause this mild cold-like illness, um, and they're not a substantial public health concern. You know, until SARS emerged in 2002, there was really no driving force toward developing a vaccine for coronaviruses um, because, as I mentioned, those other human coronaviruses only cause very mild illness and were not a substantial public health concern. So these coronaviruses, as I mentioned, they're made up of RNA. Um, SARS-CoV-2 is this one that we're currently dealing with that causes COVID-19 that is, in fact, you know, it can lead to fatal illness. Um, but the way they replicate is they release their RNA into the cell they infect. Um, that RNA actually follows the central dogma. It's converted into proteins. Um, and then they actually replicate their RNA using an enzyme that allows them to reproduce that to form new baby viruses that can go on to infect uh, more cells or more people. So that's kind of coronaviruses and SARS-CoV-2. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. 
You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. So HIV is a very, very different beast. Um, HIV, which is human immunodeficiency virus, is the virus that can lead to the disease AIDS. And AIDS is acquired immunodeficiency syndrome. Um, Now, HIV is in a family of viruses called retroviruses, which is a very unique family of RNA viruses. So they're technically, their genome is made up of RNA, um, but they're very different from the coronaviruses. That word retro means backwards. Um, and so they actually replicate by going backwards. So they they oppose that central dogma I talked about. So they actually take their RNA and they convert it into double-stranded DNA using an enzyme called reverse transcriptase, which basically means it's transcribing it backwards. <laughs> and once they make, once they convert their RNA into DNA, that, that piece of DNA actually integrates into human DNA, um, which enables the virus to hide out while they're reproducing in our cells and making more copies of themselves. And this is really important um, when we talk about the disease itself. Um, there are other human retroviruses, and most of them include viruses that cause cancer or other sorts of um, of progressing illnesses that affect the immune system. So a, another one that's a good example is called human T lymphotropic virus, or HTLV. This actually um, leads to a type of cancer called adult T-cell leukemia or lymphoma. Um, and retroviruses can often do this because they're integrating into the genome of our cells. They're actually, they're actually changing our DNA. And as we know, cancer progresses because our DNA gets changed through mutation and things like that. So a lot of retroviruses actually do lead to types of cancer. Um, there are other examples in other species, um, such as murine leukemia virus or MLV that causes leukemia in mice. Um, and there's other ones that cause immunodeficiencies like FIV, which is feline immunodeficiency virus in cats, or SIV, which is simian immunodeficiency in monkeys. Um, but these are all retroviruses that they lead to these kind of um, debilitating immunodeficiency-related conditions 
or they actually can lead to the development of cancer. And it's really, um, you know, somewhat related to how they reproduce and infect our cells. So you have me thinking here, I mean, this is really interesting. And this, you know, what you're describing, how the virus like hides out while it's reproducing and making copies of itself, if I'm summarizing that properly, that is, I don't know, a a characteristic of HIV that is that makes vaccination. I know we'll talk about this, but making develop makes developing a vaccine for HIV so difficult. And it has me thinking, my goodness, can you imagine if that were the case for SARS-CoV-2? Um, right. We, that, that would have obviously, we wouldn't have the vaccine that we have now that and other factors that we'll describe. Um, that's so scary to think about. My God. And that's, you know, that was one of the huge challenges with combating the initial epidemic because we'll get into it a little bit more, but you know, there's a time period where you don't necessarily even know you're infected. Um, it's really good at camouflaging. So, so, you know, viruses also exhibit this phenomenon called tropism. And, and I think we've posted about this on, on um, social media in the past. Um, but tropism basically means that they have a specific ability to infect either different species, different cell types, or different organs. Um, and this is and this is true for all viruses. This is important for, you know, how they infect us, how they're passed from person to person or, or if they're passed from, say, a vector like like a mosquito to a person. But it also is important for the disease pathology. Um, and it's also very important when we talk about the ability to clear the infection or our immune system to to clear the infection or also to develop vaccines. So, you know, SARS-CoV-2 and HIV both infect humans. So, So they do have tropism that they share in that regard, Um, but they infect very different cell types. So SARS-CoV-2 infects cells that express that receptor ACE2 that we've talked about a lot. So the spike protein on the virus interacts with that ACE2 receptor, um, and that, that receptor is predominantly expressed on airway and alveolar epithelial cells, so skin cells essentially in your respiratory tract. Um, endothelial cells in the vascular system. So those are blood vessel cells. Um, And then a particular type of immune cell that live in the lungs called alveolar macrophages. So those are the primary targets of SARS-CoV-2 when it infects us. Sorry, Jess, were you going to say something? No, no, no. Go on. Um, In contrast, HIV infects a specific type of T cells called CD4 T cells. And if you've heard any of my ramblings about immunology, um, CD4 T cells are also called our helper T cells. They are required for proper immune function. Um, And they are involved in helping activate B cells. They're involved in establishing memory immunity to other diseases. Um, They're involved in obviously. Um, pretty much anything that requires the adaptive immune system. So, so HIV not only infects our immune cells, so it can hide out from them inside of them, um, but part of the disease pathology is that they also kill those cells eventually after a few days and lead to a reduction in the number of those 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 CD4 T cells, which is is really how the disease progresses um, to full blown AIDS by, and that's why it's called immunodeficiency. It's it's killing your immune system, in particular those those specific subset of immune cells. Oh my god, this is a monster virus. <laughs> it's, it's really very scary. Yeah, absolutely. I'm gonna let you jump in really quick, but but this obviously the fact that it it attacks our immune system while also kind of hiding out from them 
becomes a big challenge when we're talking about how vaccines become effective. So let's let's give a little bit of a refresher on how vaccines work. And obviously, um, Andrea, th- this is your your thing. So feel free to jump in. But um, vaccines deliver, and we've we've covered this on previous episodes. But just to summarize, vaccines deliver a small or modified dose of a particular virus to your immune system, and this tiny introduction. It's not enough to make you sick, but what it does is it lets your body recognize the particles and build up a tailored defense to those molecules. And so then the next time around when you when you're actually exposed to the virus, then that virus triggers your immune cells to wake up. And this allows vaccines to mimic natural immunity without the risks associated with the illness in question. And Andrea, you've talked about this in the past. You know, it could be live virus. It could be attenuated virus, you know, dead virus, right? There are all different ways to actually deliver this, um, the dose of the virus to your immune system. And so while SARS-CoV-2 causes a potent immune response and physical acute illness, um, as you were saying, Andrea, that's not the case with HIV, right? It takes time. Yeah. So, mm-hmm, so, <laughs> so, <laughs> tell me, so, so um, you know, one of the challenges is, as I mentioned, HIV is very good at hiding out from our immune system. Um, and so, you know, that is the reason why when we, when people get infected with HIV, the symptoms of illness itself don't present for quite a while. So HIV infects us, reproduces within us relatively undetected until the virus has done enough damage to our T cells and our immune system for a person to progress to AIDS. So you could be HIV positive, but not have AIDS, right? AIDS is when you um, either have your T cell count below a certain threshold or you're starting to develop um, what we call opportunistic infections. And I'm going to get into that in just a second. Um, now, there are some signs of acute HIV infection. Um, fever, chills, rash, night sweats, muscle ache, sore throat, fatigue. Sometimes you also develop swollen lymph nodes, and some people get mouth ulcers. So these, these acute HIV infection symptoms will typically present within two to four weeks after you get infected. But these are pretty nonspecific symptoms, right? These, these fit within the wheelhouse of a lot of different infections. Um, and they're also not always present. So once you recover, and I have recover in air quotes here, because again, you're not clearing the virus, the virus is hiding out in your T cells and and reproducing. Um, You you move into what we call latent HIV. And this is kind of secondary HIV, where now the virus is reproducing, killing your T cells, you don't know about it, generally, you feel pretty okay. Eventually, uh, if you're not obviously taking treatment with with um, antiretroviral therapies, you will progress into AIDS. And so AIDS is that late stage manifestation of HIV. And that's characterized by infection with opportunistic illnesses and diseases that healthy persons would almost never get. So these are things like fungal infections caused by a whole variety of different fungal uh, pathogens. We've heard a lot about pneumocystis pneumonia. That's a very common manifestation of AIDS. Um, Rare cancers like Kaposi sarcoma. um, And of course, many other illnesses like tuberculosis and things like that. 
So this progression from HIV to AIDS, especially if untreated, can take years to develop. Um, so it's not like you get sick, your immune system recognizes it, and you recover. It's it's this very long-term progression, and the whole time HIV is hiding out and camouflaging itself um, from our immune system. Mm-hmm. So basically what you're saying is none of this is, is useful for vaccine <laughs> development, no, right? No. <laughs> no. It's a very elegant virus, um, you know, because obviously the goal of a virus is to propagate itself. It doesn't really care what it does to us as long as it can fulfill its life cycle. And so it's able to, you know, have this really, you know, nice little environment that it lives in and has a whole reservoir of different cells to reproduce in and live in. And, you know, it's not it's not killing its host. So it still has this home to live in, um, which is really the evolutionary goal for them. So I know, you know, Folks with COVID, they develop antibodies typically a few weeks after infection, right? That's why we know that people are able to get tested for antibodies pretty quickly after uh, being sick or after a presumed exposure. Um, But antibodies take a lot longer to appear in HIV patients. So, you know, I was reading that they could take up to three to five years or even longer to be detected after a person has been infected. Um, of course, the, the hope among scientists working to develop an HIV vaccine is that they can kind of forego that waiting period and, and develop a vaccine that's going to trigger antibodies to develop much sooner than than three to five years. Uh, and, and Andrea, I know that, you know, when we were talking a bit before the episode, you, you also wanted to clarify that these antibodies aren't neutralizing antibodies, right? And and those are the ones that we need to actually clear infection. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we developed some antibodies because you do have a little bit of immune recognition, but, you know, we need to actually fight off the infection, right? And, and the, anti, you know, you can have antibodies present that aren't very useful in terms of, you know, indicating immunity. And, and that's actually the case with HIV. So people don't mount a potent immune response to HIV. And that's one of the reasons why it's able to, you know, hide out and, and live inside of us for, for many years. Um, you know, while we do produce some antibodies in, in some instances of, of people who are infected, these don't actually aid in fighting off the virus. Once you're infected, you you stay infected. Um, you know, now with some of the therapies we have, you can reduce that, that, um, you know, HIV viral load really low so that functionally you look as if you're, you're uninfected, but, you know, if you stop taking those, the virus will ultimately start to, to replicate and, and overwhelm your system again. So, you know, the, the challenge is we don't develop natural immunity to HIV. So that's a fundamental issue with trying to develop a vaccine. HIV has an invisibility cloak, right? It really does. It really does. Wow. So another thing that I was reading, and again, I'm saying I was reading because this is not my area of expertise. I have to refer to you, Andrea, but, um, you know, is that HIV is very genetically diverse and the replication cycle of the virus is fast, just a little over 24 hours. And it's prone to errors and mutations, which then recombine into new strains as it gets passed from person to person. Yeah. Just, you know, on top of that, um, you know, when you kind of look at the 
number of different variants within a single person who's infected, it's it's amongst the level of number of different variants of all of the influenza strains that are circling around the world. So, you know, even wow. within a single infected person, you have all of these genetically different little HIV viral particles inside. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. That sounds like it makes it extra challenging. Um, <laughs> and again, you know, just, just to reiterate, th- there is all these things that we're outlining here make the process so difficult, but of course, scientists are actively trying and have been actively trying for decades now to, to try to come up with a vaccine. So I, I was reading about some research being done out of Stanford. Uh, they use careful doses of HIV to trigger a flood of antibodies in a monkey's reproductive tract. Um, and they were able um, to, to, you know, most subjects were protected for six months. They, you know, they, they saw some success. This uh, professor of immunology at a Stanford university, Dr. Bali Pulendran, who I, I was reading up on uh, some of his work, and he commented on how HIV mutates at breakneck speed, which again, we just described. And this throws off any specialized response immune cells create to fight it. Uh, But he said that all these tiny breaks in the case, you know, all these, um, these things that we've learned over the past few decades, they add up over time. And he said that he wouldn't be surprised if in a decade, we have a vaccine with 50% protection. And just for context, that's on par with the flu shot, which typically typically provides between like 30 to 60 percent protection. So paired with existing stop gaps and preventative measures, that could be what it takes to, uh, you know, to stop HIV in its tracks. Yeah, it's I mean, it's it's a huge challenge, you know, and, and I want to I want to kind of add some extra context here because, you know, we've heard a lot in the news about these new variants of SARS-CoV-2 and, and the concern that the existing vaccines aren't going to work. And, you know, I think I think since the virus has been identified, there's been about 10,000 mutations that have been identified. And, and most of them are benign or silent, meaning they don't actually affect the virus itself. Um, but these ones that we've paid some attention to recently that are affecting the spike protein, obviously, there's some concern that these vaccines will be less effective. So, you know, that is this concept of the antigen, which is the piece of the virus that triggers that immune response mutating. So, you know, we're really nervous about these few with regard to SARS-CoV-2. But with HIV, you have, you know, hundreds of them within a single person. And so the fact that you have so much diversity in the antigens in a single individual um, just compounds the challenge of finding an appropriate target for an effective vaccine. Um, Something else to add. So we've talked a lot about the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2, and that's the one that seems to be the most potent at inducing our immune system to recognize it as this foreign invader, which is what you need to kind of trigger that immune response and that memory immunity. Um, the antigens of HIV, so those are the proteins that they express on the outside of the virus that our immune system would interact with, actually resemble proteins that we have, um, that, that our cells have, that we have naturally. So the immune system ignores it because it looks like us. 
Um, mm -hmm. So this is a phenomenon called immune camouflage or molecular mimicry. And basically it, it compounds that challenge because now our immune cells, they see this virus come in, but they kind of look at it and they scope it out. And they're like, oh no, this just looks like a T cell um, because that's what HIV does. It expresses antigens that that look just like, like our proteins. So that makes it challenging to generate immunity to it, but it also makes it challenging to develop a vaccine because we don't want the vaccine to cross-react with our own cells, right? So we have to ha find something that's distinct enough um, in HIV that, you know, we can trigger that immune response without also leading to some sort of response against our own cells. So Andrea, I know that um, we wanted to talk about some other targets for HIV, right? So there's cell therapy, CAR-T, which I need you to explain what that what that is, but um, vaccines that can serve as therapeutics rather than preventative. So can you take us through some of these other targets for HIV? Yeah. So, you know, the challenge with HIV, you know, as we've talked about, of course, it, it doesn't elicit, you know, you don't develop natural immunity. It's able to essentially camouflage itself. You don't get this very potent immune response with acute infection. And so, you know, there's a lot of research also being, obviously, there's a lot of research looking into preventative vaccines. But there's other ways that we can also target HIV um, to at least reduce morbidity and mortality. You know, even though we do have very effective antiretroviral therapies now, and we actually have prophylactic treatments that you can take if you've had an exposure that that are very effective at preventing you from getting infected, um, even if you're exposed, um, you know, we're trying to take multiple tactics because HIV is so complex. And so um, cell therapy is basically taking immune cells out of your body engineering them to recognize HIV by basically creating a specific receptor that it will recognize the virus, um, you know, explicitly, and then reinfusing them into your body. It's a very similar strategy that we use for cancer um, cell therapy. So CAR T therapy for cancer, where instead of the cancer cell, it's now recognizing the HIV. Um, I actually collaborated with a group at UPenn um, on a paper that we published this summer that was developing a screening platform to, um, you know, identify potential cell therapy targets to treat HIV, which has been a really interesting project for me. Um, but these will basically, they're not going to prevent the, the infection, right? They're going to be for treatments once a person is infected. Um, and that would be the same for potential vaccines that could be therapeutic rather than preventative. They would be serving to address or reduce the number of infected T cells that a person has so that you can essentially eliminate the the physical illness or the, the risk of progressing to AIDS. Okay, so another thing that we haven't yet discussed, um, you know, what, what goes on behind the scenes, the logistics of funding for research, that's also problematic for HIV researchers, since federal and independent agencies typically fund projects for two to five years. So, you know, we've, <laughs> I think we, we've tried to highlight here how complex this issue is, right? This, this virus uh, has not made the vaccine development process easy. So it might be that some researchers are, they make progress and they generate small scale studies, but studies can often take longer than five years. And then the funding cycle resets and it's a scramble for new funding. So 
projects can end if they don't secure enough money the next time around. Yeah. And that, I mean, Jess, that's a challenge with a lot of different, um, you know, diseases. And I think one similarity, you know, with HIV and SARS-CoV-2 is is that, you know, we actually started this whole vaccine development process back in 2002 with the the OG SARS, SARS-CoV or SARS-CoV-1. Um, and, and there was actually a vaccine candidate developed when that pandemic started, um, but there wasn't enough funding for completion of those clinical trials. Um, and then a separate issue from that is by the time they had some, you know, very effective candidates ready for testing, the SARS pandemic was, you know, functionally gone. Um, and in order to test the efficacy of a vaccine, you need the disease in question to be present so that you can test whether the vaccine candidate versus the placebo is effective at preventing illness. SARS, and we've discussed this in the past, but the SARS pandemic is very distinct from that of the COVID pandemic because SARS caused such severe illness that when you got sick from it, you you pretty much kind of self-quarantined or you were hospitalized. And you also had almost no asymptomatic transmission that the outbreak eventually burned itself out. Um, so a lot of that research was kind of, you know, dormant uh, until SARS-CoV-2 came along. So, you know, we've talked about this at length. They are both in the coronavirus family. They both cause human illness. Um, they're, they're similar, but not the same. But, you know, we had done all that work with SARS since 2002, and that was really the foundation for the COVID-19 vaccine. So, you know, yes, we technically developed the actual vaccine, you know, in less than a year. Um, but that was really kind of deciding, you know, the formulation, completing the clinical trials, doing all of that, all of the the antigen um, or target development for the vaccine. So figuring out what component of the virus was going to trigger the immune response and all of that sort of stuff. All of that background work was done, you know, almost two decades ago when we first encountered SARS. Right. And we, we've covered this at length on, on previous episodes. Um, and we also have done several posts on this. So what you're saying is that, again, you know, we had the groundwork laid for us with, as you said, the, you know, OG SARS, right? <laughs> SARS-CoV. So we had that. Another thing I want to highlight that we've talked about a lot, and again, it's it's definitely worth going back and listening to some of those previous episodes where we discussed this in, in more detail. But, you know, everyone talks about how is it possible that you created the, you know, you, you developed this vaccine in, in one year, there's no way that it was safe. You must have cut corners. And again, as we've described, none of that happened. It's just that instead of running a lot of, you know, A, we had all this research to build upon. B, none of the clinical trials were, were rushed. They all occurred. They just, instead of happening consecutively, we, we ran the trials concurrently, right? So that's just one other thing I wanted to highlight that we've talked yeah, about. Absolutely. Um, I have a question for you, but it's, uh, it's sort of off topic. So if there's anything else you wanted to say here, Andrew. Yeah. So I just kind of want to wrap it up. So, you know, with, with COVID-19, you mount this, you have this very obvious acute illness where you have a very potent immune response. You generate uh, memory immunity. Um, The new data suggests that, 
you know, you could have up to eight months of, of natural immunity after, re- you know, recovering from COVID-19. Um, and so the vaccines that we've developed for that kind of build upon that principle. With HIV, it, it doesn't do that. It doesn't, you don't develop immunity to it. HIV lives inside an infected person's body essentially indefinitely. Um, and it actually hides out from our immune system. So we don't um, mount a potent immune response to it. Plus it lives inside our immune cells um, and it leads to progressive degradation of your immune function to the point where, you know, you ultimately die from these um, opportunistic infections as a result of not having a functioning immune system. And so, you know, all of those things that are unique to retroviruses or unique to HIV make finding an effective vaccine candidate very challenging. So, you know, it's not that we just ignored HIV. We've been working on it for almost 40 years. It's just such a unique and complex virus coupled with the fact it mutates so quickly that the vaccine candidates that have been developed just haven't been potent enough. They haven't been effective enough. Mm -hmm. So here's my question. Um, What do you think? I mean, do you think the development of a vaccine for SARS-CoV-2, you know, with this mRNA technology that's uh, obviously it's been successful, we have these vaccines that have such high efficacy. Do you think that this, you know, does this open up doors potentially for an HIV vaccine or because of all the things that we've discussed that you have (laughs) outlined and discussed on this episode, you know, we still have those challenges and it doesn't really impact. You know, It's hard to say. I think, I think, you know, vaccinology, vaccine technology has come a really long way. Um, There are actually several potential candidates that are being tested in various parts of the world right now for HIV. Um, I I think it certainly could be, could be a player. These new technologies, um, you know, the, the RNA or the viral vector based or things like that. Um, I think the more approaches we have available, um, you know, the better, because I think for something as complicated as HIV, it may in fact be a multi-pronged approach. We may have um, kind of a a multiple antigen type vaccine. Since we know it mutates very quickly, we might have to target multiple components of the virus. Um, but But I do think that, you know, seeing the progress of these newer vaccine technologies in the fight against COVID definitely bodes well for other viruses that have been challenging to target. Well, here's hoping, I guess, right? <laughs> I, I, I'm still in total awe of the, uh, the the COVID vaccines. And and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm confident that somewhere down the road, we'll have a, a vaccine for HIV. But you've done a really good job explaining the complexities with this particular virus, and the challenges um, that have been roadblocks to developing, a, a, you know, a vaccine candidate uh, yet. But okay, Andrea, can you take a sure? Home? So I hope everybody understands a little bit more about why these two viruses are not really comparable. Um, why developing a vaccine for COVID nineteen, you know, is not some you know ploy, uh, uh, you know, or we're ignoring HIV or things like that. They they are truly very distinct viruses, very distinct diseases, and HIV has its own set of challenges. Um, So thanks for joining us today. We hope you learned a thing or two. And if you like our pod, please share with your friends and family. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts.
podcasts. We have revamped our website and we officially have merch. So please check it out at www.unbiasedscipod.com. You can pick yourself up some unbiased science merch. You can leave us a donation. You can also drop us a question for our herd from the herd. Uh, Next week, we're going to discuss human subjects protection in research and some of the considerations involved in clinical trials. We will also continue to provide updates on COVID-19 vaccine progress, um, the ongoing pandemic, etc. on our social media accounts. So be sure to follow those on Instagram and Facebook at Unbiased SciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. I